thank you everyone for coming today to um, this sitting of Oxford Traditional Justice Research. It's great to see so many people here and it's great to have um, Laura with us here today jumping in um, and delivering this interesting talk. Um, my name is Ivo, I am the External Relations Officer of OTJR and I see many familiar faces here, but I see some new faces in the room as well. So the people who know us already know what we do. Please excuse this couple of sentences that I would like to say about OTJR. Um, we are probably the biggest interdisciplinary academic network dealing with transitional justice, not only in Oxford, but um, in the UK and and with aspirations of being a global leader in, in this field in terms of uh, delivering talks and network for transitional justice researchers. And we um, pride ourselves in being a very interdisciplinary network as well, working with people from completely different background disciplines such as history, politics, law, anthropology, sociology, and many others. Um, the main activity we have is our weekly seminars that we organize every week with different speakers um, dealing with transitional justice um, in broad terms. And uh, today we are very excited to have Laura with us from uh, the University of Birmingham who just joined us to deliver another talk on Sierra Leone. After the very successful talk last week, we're going on to look at uh, transitional justice processes there, but from a slightly different perspective this time. And as Laura mentions in her, in her abstract, whilst transitional justice is very often regarded as this very formalistic, very institutionally driven process, her presentation will deal with the normal or normalized side of transitional justice. Informal, if you want to call it that. Or even <laughs> informal, if you, want to, um, if you want to call it that way, and focusing on individual perceptions and the role of individual agency with regard to transitional justice processes rather than um, what we maybe conventionally think of uh, when we talk about transitional justice. Um, Dr. Laura Martin uh, just started her postdoctoral project at the University of Birmingham and as mentioned, her research focuses on formal and informal transitional justice mechanisms with a particular interest in, uh, interest in individual agency and individual appropriation of these processes. Uh, she's conducted extensive um, research in rural Sierra Leone and has published some of her findings in an article entitled Practicing Normality, an examination of unrecognizable transitional justice mechanisms in Sierra Leone. Before that, she was at the University of Edinburgh and without further ado, uh, let us welcome Laura for being with us today. Thanks very much. This is excellent. I'm very, very happy with this turnout. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm, I'm a stand-in for Janine Clark, um, who was going to be discussing, I believe, sexual violence. Uh, so, unfortunately, we're not talking about sexual violence today. <laughs> um, so my talk is going to be discussing transitions, justice, and normality. Um, it's a, this is a particular chapter taken out of my thesis, which was more broadly about um, the role of agency in relation to transitional justice mechanisms in Sierra Leone. Uh, and this particular chapter focuses on the kind of everyday experiences, so those outside of institutions. So, right. I bet you've seen this heading many times in these presentations. <laughs> um, um, but, 
I'm, I, I won't go over sort of the history of transitional justice. I'm kind of assuming everybody has a very base knowledge of the purpose of the mechanisms and things like that. Um, what I do want to emphasize, though, is some of the criticisms that happened in the mid to late 1990s. Um, when there, was, there were a lot of critiques about this idea that, that transitional justice mechanisms weren't localized enough. And um, as a result of that, people started to focus quite a bit on this notion of ownership and participation in these processes. Now, this took on a lot of different kinds of forms, um, a few of which I will show you here. Third slide. Okay. Um, so within this sort of movement, there were, I, I would say there's, there was kind of two ways of understanding this localization process. One was that um, institutions and mechanisms that were already designed, so things like courts, reparations programs, truth commissions, things like this, were, um, they were, they were essentially similar institutions, uh, which I'll talk about a little bit later on. Uh, in relation to Sierra Leone, but um, they, the institutions themselves were still the same design. So it was as though these institutional mechanisms then had sort of an add-on of a particularly culturally sensitive or localized component to them. Um, for example, in relation to the special court for Sierra Leone, this was um, a response largely to um, a lot of the critiques with the ICTR and ICTY and um, the fact that these were very distant, neither of the courts were actually in the countries for which these um, uh, justice was being done for these victims and things like that. Um, so the Special Court for Sierra Leone was actually based in Sierra Leone. It had Sierra Leonean lawyers, it had Sierra Leonean laws, um, and in this respect, it was considered more localized. Uh, similarly, with the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, there were there was also supposed to be local components. But another aspect of localizing transitional justice was these kind of, um, these more local programs. Um, so as you can see, there a couple of examples are Gachacha, uh, Mato Oput in Uganda. And then on the left-hand side, I should have labeled these. Um, on the left-hand side, it's, that's a local organization in Sierra Leone, which is the other part of my thesis, <laughs> called Fambal Talk. And if you have questions about these, those programs, particularly about family talk, I'd be happy to, to talk about those more. Um, but in relation to these, um, there, these also proved sort of problematic as well because they were often very romanticized. Uh, there's a lot of criticisms around the fact that, that automatically assuming local is, is equated with things like tradition and um, sort of romanticization um, became kind of problematic as well. A lot of them, differed substantially from their original forms. Um, but I think for the purposes of this presentation, the one thing that I want to emphasize is that these were still very formal, or what I refer to in my thesis as recognized mechanisms. So within an institutional scope, these still had recognized um, structures where you could actually find these organizations and they ran through a particular institution. Okay, so we've established that. Okay, so this is my key argument in relation to this particular uh, talk. Transitions and justice are not only institutional, but also individual. I move away from discussions about societies and normative questions of institutional effectiveness to demonstrate that agency of individuals uh, in post-conflict societies. So I'm gonna be talking particularly about individuals and so doing 
In doing this, I'm going to show individual experiences both during the war and after the war. Um, okay, so a bit overview about Sierra Leone. How much do people know about Sierra Leone? <laughs> a little bit? Mixed, yeah. Mixed? Okay, well, I'll do a very brief overview. <laughs> it's a former British uh, ex-slave colony. Uh, it became independent in 1961. Um, in 1970, well, Shaka Stevens came to, par came to power in 1968, actually. Uh, as prime minister, the constitution changed. Um, I learned recently, actually, that uh, when the Constitution first changed, there was a president for one day before Shaka Stevens came into power, which I didn't know. Um, <laughs> and then Shaka Stevens came into power, and it created an authoritarian state, ultimately, um, and this concentrated power both um, at the central state level, but also locally. So when I say locally, I mean um, chieftaincy power in rural areas. And this had a really uh, big impact, particularly on young men. Um, and there's, actually we were just talking about, um, there's, there's quite an academic debate as to whether the rebels kind of derive from this urban group of people or this more um, rural group of young men, um, which I won't get into here. Um, you can read Paul Richards to find out more about that. Um, but it is, I think for better or worse, I think like as Dave Harris says, you know, it's a bit of both. There, for better or worse, well, for worse, there was um, a lot of disillusioned young men um, when the early 90s came about. So from 1985 to 1991, Shaka um, uh, Stevens' successor, Momo, was in power, and the civil conflict started uh, from, which occurred from 1991 to 2002. I'm just gonna stand on this chair. If you can see where the town of McKinney is, that is where I worked. So I worked in the northern area which is important for the context of this particular uh, talk. Okay. So, um, in relation to the actual conflict, um, oftentimes there are, um, I, well, yeah, so this is just about how conflicts are sort of narrated. And the point I sort of want to make is that Often these are chronological stories. So they fit into very neat categories. So it's from war to peace. It's this happened in 91, then this happened in 93, this happened in 97, this happened in 98. And um, often these, these, these narrations highlight sort of the most extreme aspects of conflict. So things like death toll, highlight um, extreme violence. So in Sierra Leone, that was in relation to amputations. Um, uh, significant sexual violence, um, blood diamonds, as I'm sure you've all seen Leonardo DiCaprio's rendition of. <laughs> and um, there's often a, um, an emphasis on the kind of victimhood of, of these particular, um, of, of, of the people who have been hurt. I, the reason I included this second photo is actually that's the first photo that you get when you Google conflict in Sierra Leone and, and Google images. So I just thought that was kind of interesting. Um, and then in relation to the post-conflict era, era as well, there is quite a bit of emphasis on linearity. So this idea that you're moving from a state of war to a state of peace. Um, and often that you're doing this with, through or vis-a-vis -vis particular institutions in Sierra Leone that would have been a disarmament, demobilization, reintegration program a special court, 
a tree commission, a reparations program. It was really like a, let's just throw everything in and see what happens. <laughs> um, so, let me see, where am I? Um, so I guess my point in relation to this is, is that um, there seems to be a very sort of defined trajectory of how these things work, when in fact there's kind of, there, things occur at very different points in time. Yes? Just yeah. Um, well, this would be in relation to how Sierra Leone is talking about war. So my next slide is going to be, actually, that's a, a good segue. <laughs> um, so this is in relation to my own research in Sierra Leone, which was in Bombali District. So this is individual stories of conflict. So these are actual accounts from some of my um, informants. I did about 150 interviews with different people in Sierra Leone and rural Sierra Leone. And so this just kind of gives you a different um, a scope of the way people described war. Um, and so if, I'll give you a minute to read that, and then I'd just like to know people's thoughts on, on these particular accounts. This kind of runs the gamut. Uh, it's representative of the different kinds of accounts I got. What do people notice, or what are your observations about these particular narratives? I'd just be curious. Seems like the narrative is very much related to um, the daily survival, I guess, or the daily struggles. Mm -hmm. It's very very routinized. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Anything else? No, they're not really. <laughs> I, I didn't really go over the war, but the rebels also, the, the factions in which rebels were sort of represented changed over time, over the course of the 11 to 12 years. So there were alliances and allegiances that gradually changed as the war went on. Um, I think, so one thing I, I really want to emphasize here is obviously um, the diversity of people's experiences. Some people said, yeah, it wasn't really that bad. You know, it's, there's always hard times in, in Sierra Leone. We live in poverty. War is just another thing we have to deal with. It's not that different from, you know, everyday survival in the time leading up to the war. Um, I also was really intrigued by the la uh, I think it was the third one, um, the, be the beginning of it when it, it says, when the war came, it met me here. And to me, that really illustrates that war is very much a personalized experience. It was about the war meeting people in their own communities as opposed to a war more generally. So it didn't become a war until it, people actually encountered it themselves or visually saw it. And this was really important in my own field research because um, where I researched, the war didn't actually come to that particular region until I think the beginnings of it were in 96. And then it, it became more prevalent in that particular region in about 1998. So it wasn't really until the, the sort of tail end of the 1990s that people actually encountered it. Um, So, I mean, I think, I don't want to necessarily take away from people's experiences. Obviously, people, people had mobile phones and there was communication during these periods and things like that. Um, but 
there, there, and there, and so in that sense, there was this kind of existential uncertainty of something that was occurring out there, but it wasn't occurring to them until they visually saw it in front of them. And again, um, the way that attacks often happened, and the way that they were described to me in most of my interviews, is that the rebels would kind of attack in the in the way that we would think of very violently. They would often burn people's homes, um, often capture people. Um, although at that at, at that again, and that at that point in the war, they weren't as as interested necessarily in in capturing child soldiers as they were early on in the war. Um, but um, they, I mean, they would they would enter these communities and then um, the kind of um, sorry, I'm just a bit distracted. Um, and then, um, but after that, people kind of described it as, as the rebels would live sort of next to them. And they would occasionally come bother them for food or they would occasionally need people to help them out with food finding, they called it Jaja. But they were, people in the communities were often very amenable to this because they saw it as a survival mechanism. So again, that kind of blurs the, the line between victim and perpetrator. Um, and the reason I have the chessboard, I, I quite like this analogy because um, individuals are very reactive. So the rebels make a move, you make another defensive move. And it's, it's very much a back and forth kind of thing. And it's always, it's this war is this constant negotiation between different people. And, um, but the point I, I want to illustrate from that is that it's really the opposite of the passive victim that you would see um, accounted for in particular by transitional justice mechanisms or through uh, various narratives through the media and things like that, they're actually very active and very creative in the ways that they react to the, the, their, their own survival. So moving on to the transitional justice mechanisms, um, how much do we know about transitional justice in Sierra Leone? <laughs> a little bit? So I described it a little bit. Um, as I said, it was, uh, there were quite a few mechanisms that were happening. Uh, on the, on the right-hand side there, that's the special court. Um, on the left-hand side, that's the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Thumble Talk International was the sort of local mechanism in which uh, they went into communities and facilitated bonfire ceremonies so that people could um, apologize, victims and perpetrators who lived in the same communities. Um, However, there's a lot of critiques in relation to these, even though they were facilitated around a time where they were trying to take local participation a lot more seriously. Um, they didn't, a lot of people still, still felt very distanced from these particular mechanisms or they didn't feel like they were participating in them. Uh, for example, the special court was based in Freetown. If you didn't live in Freetown, you really didn't know much about it. They tried to create an outreach program, but the very, in my opinion, the very fact that you have to create an outreach program is a little bit problematic, that you're actually teaching people about how they should understand justice. So it's something to think about. <laughs> um, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, um, that was criticized uh, quite a bit by Rosalind Shaw. I'm sure you probably read that article. But uh, the main criticism was that a lot of people went to, to give their testimonies um, and were expecting to be paid for them. They thought it was an economic exchange of some sort. Um, Femble Talk, I don't know, I guess Rebecca and I are really 
the only two people who've researched it more in depth. I don't know of many others, but um, that's that's going to be my book <laughs> potentially coming up. Um, but it's I mean it, it was a very interesting program. But the, again, the ways in which they went into communities and they were sort of teaching people about war experiences. And, and the ways that they were talking to them about the war just kind of illustrated the dichotomies or the different categories of, lo of local people in which these institutions and programs often facilitate. Okay. So there are three different ways in which I discuss these sort of transitions through everyday mechanisms. Um, so, one is through economic restoration. Um, this is in large part the ability to physically rebuild homes and livelihoods. This occurred through uh, social and familial networks. Uh, Karina, one of the towns I worked in in northern Sierra Leone is a really good example of this. A lot of people either had family living abroad or in bigger towns that would be able to provide uh, financial um, assistance, or um, they were also provided with um, food stamps or food staples and things like that. Um, and these things were actually really important, not just for physical reasons, but also because they reaffirmed the reliability of social networks, such as big men, who are responsible for the needs of their dependents, and their dependents rely on them for resources, support, and opportunities. Um, these are these are very much a normal sort of social system. So I think restoring the social system um, signified kind of a movement towards um, restoration and, and a little bit more sort of normality, which I'll talk about in a minute. The second one is agricultural engagement. Um, these these are all quotes from my informants that I put up there. Um, so this largely refers to farming, which is the primary mode of subsistence in Sierra Leone. Well, in, in rural areas anyways, um, but generally overall as well. Uh, during the war, people could not rely on being in a place long enough to really farm and establish themselves. Uh, but the ability to come and continue group farming was important to people, so coming together again. Um, a lot of people didn't have a choice. Um, they, were, they really had to farm in groups because there wasn't really enough, um, there weren't really enough resources to go around. Um, but again, this helped people reestablish their sort of everyday livelihoods. It was also a forum for people to come together and interact with one another. Um, and these sort of frequent interactions helped people overcome this disconnect and sense of uncertainty that you were often feeling during the war. And then the third one, which I think is quite interesting, is um, religion. And I think religion's quite interesting because it talks, it's, it's not often recognized in transitional justice, but it's a very, very important epistemological framework for a lot of people all across the world, not, certainly not just in Sierra Leone. Um, and understanding this epistemology and how people understand their own worlds is really important. Um, but transitional justice kind of treats it as this like, secular thing, but there's actually some really, there, there are one or two pieces that are really interesting. I think there's, um, 
there's some guys from Northern Ireland who write about it, and it's quite interesting, and it's quite good, um, talking about actually the, the, um, these ideas of justice and these ideas um, that come, that are critical to transitional justice actually come from, derive from religious texts in, in the first place, and there's a lot of overlap within these. So, something to think about. Um, but another point is that um, Rosalind Shaw talked a lot about uh, a lot about this. To forgive and forget is a phrase which was thrown around a lot after the war. Um, it encapsulates this very concept of redeeming one's own livelihood and freeing oneself from thoughts of revenge and loss. So this is a much more broad idea in the way that the Sierra Leoneans often thought about it. Um, so religion helped in multiple ways, I would say. Um, the actual institutions themselves, um, priests and imams, are um, very, very, very respected members of the community. And they were very, very critical in helping people or encouraging people to not seek revenge, to get past these thoughts, um, these kinds of things. Um, and so these, act these messages of peace and forgiveness and this encouragement um, was, was very important for people. The second one, and this is probably a little bit controversial, but people take a very sort of fatalistic attitude to their sort of livelihoods. Um, I think it's in the second quote. I leave everything to God, those men will be judged. I don't know the person who hurt me. They are left to God's judgment. And people just, people in general in Sierra Leone just don't understand themselves in char being in charge of their own fate. So again, it has to do with the way that people think about their lives and what their role is within these, within these worlds. Um, however, I do want to point out, I, I don't necessarily mean to equate fatalism with blameless, blamelessness nor is it supposed to imply that these individuals are, res are resigned to their circumstances. Rather, it is to acknowledge that discourses surrounding concepts like justice and forgiveness acknowledge that um, derive from diverse social and moral constructions and cannot be discredited, discredited regardless of how right or wrong they may be perceived. And then the final one um, is, has to do with prayer. And... Um, that comes out in the third quote. I sometimes dream of my son and cry, but religion consoles me. God has given me a new life, and through prayer, I have been able to overcome all that has passed. I was not killed. And I think that there's this kind of, it's an interesting way of thinking about the intersection between the spiritual world and the physical world. Um, so, so an active engagement with prayer can be a channel through which bad memories of experiences can be replaced with positive visible outcomes. Whether or not this is, you know, actually true is sort of besides the point. It's how people, again, perceive themselves and the way that they interact. Um, okay, so transitions to a new normal. Um, so normality, is, it's, it's a tricky concept, but that's why I kind of, and this idea of normality is, it's, yeah. Kind of lost my train of thought. Um, <laughs> sorry. Um, it's. I mean, it, it differs for different people. But the, this came up. I mean, this is just one quote. But this idea, or the the way that it was translated, came up a lot. So um, 
just the quote, it was the idea of normalcy of life that encouraged me to get away from the memories. I had no more resentment while everybody was going about their daily activities. And I just, I, I think this is really important to think about just because it's not something that comes up. Where, what's the role of people's everyday lives in, within transitional justice? So um, in my article, I talk about this idea of practicing normality. Um, life does not just become normal again, it is first practice. Reestablishing normality is a process in which new realities are negotiated, sustained livelihoods are reconstructed, and narratives are reframed in order to get on with daily life. Individuals and communities slowly began to re-engage with activities by first imitating what they perceived to be normal. They did this through social interactions, routine religious engagement, and economic endeavors in order to actualize this desired state. By imitate, I do not mean to say they are pretending, but rather they are reenacting and reaffirming social, social and economic practices that may have become less familiar or, or altogether absent during periods of conflict and violence. Therefore, re-engaging with familiar Ordinary routines in everyday life is both a practice in and practicing normality. Okay, and just briefly to conclude. Um, so I've just tried to show here that, um, you know, there's a lot more, this isn't necessarily just about transitional justice mechanisms. We talk about institutions and mechanisms, but the individuals involved in these post-conflict worlds are also really important to highlight. So just to briefly conclude, um, this is essentially my thesis <laughs> argument, is uh, transitions and justice do not happen to or for post-conflict societies. Rather, individuals engage with various processes that help them move past war-related experiences. Thank you. <laughs>